Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview Podcast, September 30th, 2015, the Pope and Putin edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department at the University of Birmingham. Joined as usual by my co-hosts, Kristala Yakinthu, Birmingham Research Fellow. How are you doing, Kristala? I'm doing very well, thank you, Adam. How are you doing? I'm pretty awesome, thank you for asking. And Scott Lucas, Professor of International Politics and Editor of News and Commentary site EA Worldview. How are you doing, Scott? As long as we have some sunshine here in Birmingham, I'm doing fine. Well, for today, and perhaps today only, then you are uh, you are in luck. Uh, two topics this week. First, pontificating in Congress was taken to a whole new level as Pope Francis visited Washington, D.C., as well as New York and Philadelphia. We assess how well he went in his efforts to tread with care in the snake-filled garden of American domestic politics while giving his flock something to think about. Second, President Obama used his speech in the United Nations this week to launch about as direct a personal attack on Russia's Vladimir Putin as it's possible to do at a ceremonial gathering of 193 countries. We'll take his cue to pause and consider the Russian strongman's current role in the world, real and self-imagined, and his relationship to the United States. Onward. Since taking on the job as 226th head of the Catholic Church in 2013, the Argentine Pope Francis has carefully crafted an image as a man of the people and a sympathiser with progressive and liberal forces, unlike some of his recent predecessors. Tuesday to Saturday last week, he took his show to the United States, where he spoke to a joint session of the US Congress, as well as participating in well-populated masses in New York and Philadelphia. In his public remarks, he issued relatively gentle references to the importance of traditional marriage and the church's stand against abortion, while also warning against a harsh and divisive approach to social issues. Meanwhile, he made more headlines for calling for attention to economic inequality, suffering on the part of refugees and immigrants, and the threat of climate change. His address clearly had quite an impact on the Republican Speaker of the House, John Boehner, who spent most of the address in tears and decided the next day he'd had enough of his job. What importance those uh, those of us who are on a more even emotional keel might attribute to those events, uh, uh, I guess, is still to be discussed. So, Cristala, how did Pope Franny's visit um, float Affect your boat? Me. How did it go? Any any tears on your part? Any resignations contemplated? As let's say a very distant observer of the Pope, let's say as distant as you can get uh, as an observer of the Pope, my comments are limited to what he was in America. And he did some stuff in Cuba as well, right? There was this thing, Cuba-US relationships that he seems to have some thing with. Also, you were on top of this brief totally, so far. It's blowing my mind uh, right it was now. It an amazing... I was so into this thing. You um, did nothing did, else. You just, you just got up at dawn, I just turned on the live feed, and every moment of the video visit was... Uh, tracked him obsessively. So what I did note during the time that, that caused me amusement was that... Um, one of the Congress men, I believe, said that if this Pope was going to act like an activist, then we're going to treat him like one. Um, what does that mean? And, that sounds and, ominous, given how they treat some activists. <laughs> well, well, I think like Black Lives some... Matter activists? Like, what are they talking about? Okay, we're like going to Send in the riot police. <laughs> Um, basically, that meant when you're talking about a Pope, we're not going to attend your your uh, rapturous performance in Congress. Well, I bet other activists would welcome the same consideration. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's re- that's really I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm my feelings about this Pope, given that he's the head of this institution called the Catholic Church, which is one of the wealthiest institutions that exists. My feelings are rather torn. And I'm going to kick it over to you. It will be interesting to to see where Adam sets us straight because 
I was actually struck by almost the here today, gone tomorrow nature of the visit. And, and that's not to downplay the immediate response, you know, the large crowds, the almost celebrity status that was given to it. Rock star status. The rock star status of it. And mm. then, he has a certain uh, charisma that his predecessor lacked, I think it's fair yeah, to say. Yeah, the, but yeah I, and he certainly tops Pope Benedict, I believe it was, uh, the former Cardinal Ratzenberger. Uh, both in being apparently a genuinely nice guy. I don't know if you're joking or not. It was Ratzinger, but uh, Ratzenberger would be a pretty good name. Ratzenberger, uh, I think he's being cast as a Marx Brothers uh, film. Uh, could be, now, Ratzinger, thank you for the correction. I mean, at one time it was Cardinal Rottweiler, if I remember correctly. And so, obviously, that speaks to one thing that we're talking about here, which is that Pope Francis has given a different image, I think, to the church amongst many people of actually trying to connect with people, not just handing down edicts from above. Uh, he's had to navigate some very tricky waters, uh, the child abuse scandals that have rocked the church in many parts of the world. The feeling that the church was out of touch on social issues, such as, for example, the social and economic questions, which he was close to in Argentina. So I think from that standpoint, you know, that's all to the good that's there. But I think there's a bigger question where I appreciate your all's insight. And that is, I think, the political relevance of the church. You know, we talked a few months ago when we talked about the Irish referendum uh, on uh, gay marriage, whether or not Ireland had almost, in a sense, surpassed the church and that mm. people were not feeling like they had to listen to the command from the, the pulpit and then immediately cast their ballot. And I think in the same way, it's interesting that and understandable that on the one hand, Pope Francis would soft pedal the issue of abortion, which is a hot-button issue in many countries, not just in the U.S. On the other hand, where he would choose to make a stand, and I applaud him for this, a stand on climate change. Mm -hmm. That is an important and serious issue, which is part of why he was being considered no better than a code peak mm -hmm. activist who should be chucked out of the Capitol by some of the troglodyte Republicans, let's call them. Um, it's an escalation from Tea Party caucus. Which yeah, that's true. You know, they sort of either escalated or descended further. They're having their tea in a cave, maybe. Uh, well, given the fact that uh, whether or not you call them troglodytes or not, that these Republicans, in a sense, chucked out their own uh, leader, the Speaker of the House, John Boehner, after mm -hmm. you know, not necessarily just because he cried, but because he isn't considered you know fundamental enough. Mm -hmm. You know, to go in and talk about climate change, I think is to be welcomed. But what happens next? I think that's the important thing. And sort of linking up the two issues, because we're about to get to a, another leader of a much different brand um, in Mr. Putin later. His predecessor, one Joseph Stalin, said 70 years ago, when told about the power of the Catholic Church, fine, but how many divisions does the Pope have? Um, I think he was there specifically speaking about military strength, but I think the, the same thing could be turned into... Supposed to math somewhat? <laughs> yeah. no, I think someone had done the math quite clearly, which was, I got a lot, he's got zero. Yeah. Um, and how much Pope Francis brings, not just personally, how much the Catholic Church brings in terms of its organization, in terms of what it wants to do, is the key question. Uh, the Catholic Church does a lot of things that, that don't make the headlines, at least in terms of the mainstream media, in terms of uh, providing food aid, in terms of disaster relief, in terms of trying to carry out humanitarian efforts, um, balancing that with Christella's doubts about some of the moral positions the church has had, um, they have done this. But quite often, you don't get that in the discussion. It's the Pope or nothing. And I think in many respects, where the church positions itself, not just on a celebrity visit on the U.S., but on certain issues in Latin America, in Africa, in Asia, 
that's what I'd be looking you know, uh, for long after uh, the hoopla has sort of subsided over, over Franny's visit. But is he just on that before before we move to Adam, who is who is waiting very patiently to, to say his I think I think you're setting me up with a little too high an expectation <laughs> set at this point, but yeah, go on. I, don't, I doubt that, I doubt that. Um, how much of a change in terms of these social social policy, the social policy work that the, that the church does? How much has that shifted since he's taken on the uh, hat? I, it's my impression, and again, I think Adam probably will come in and, and oh. see. <laughs> I can't get away from that. Now you really are building expectations too high. My, in, my intricate knowledge of the inner workings of the Catholic Church may not be what you're setting the listeners up well, to expect. Well, I, I think you just you just touched on this. This isn't just a religious institution. This is a this is an extensive political network with all the types of negotiation and fighting that takes place. Now my personal impression of where Pope Francis was is that he believed that the church had gotten itself into a tangle by taking what was considered to be very loud, you know, supposedly you know, commanding issues on on a number of things in terms of, for example, gay and lesbian rights, in terms of abortion. That it, in fact, by taking these big, loud positions, was not connecting with people on what was their everyday concerns, yeah. on the economic and social concerns. Now, instead of therefore going in and fighting the political fight, we're not going to see a grand Vatican II announcement from this, you know, to completely remake the church now. Mm. It was the idea of let's see what the church is relevant for today and how much it can continue to uh, have an effect in terms of the everyday activities. So I don't expect political fireworks to come out from the church. I think he's trying to avoid that. But that means it's not going to satisfy, I think, those of us who would like the church to make a very, you know, from the top down, you know, mark shift. For example, to give you one, in the 1980s, the Catholic Church quashed liberation theology. They just stomped all over it in terms of their, uh, their clergy in Latin America who said we need a theological movement that recognizes compassion, connecting with the poor, and this means challenging social and economic institutions. The church quashed that. Now, I don't think he goes in and says, we're going to remake liberation theology, folks. He's going to say, however, the church does have a responsibility to the poor and a responsibility to deal with that, and I think give that a priority over then say, all right, what are we going to say about people, whether or not they can use contraception this week? Hmm. Well, I, <laughs> as everyone draws breaths back, I, I have mixed feelings about all this Pope love. And I mean, there's been a lot of Pope love uh, over, the course of, over the course of last week, because I guess you get all the people who are interested in the Pope uh, because they are religious or into that bag. And I guess you have all the interest, unusually from the progressives this time around, because they love this Pope. They think he's doing the thing that they, that they approve of. Uh, uh, he's you know, a more acceptable face for, for this sort of thing. Now, look, I, I come from Ireland, a country with no shortage, as you may have heard, of Catholicism in its history. I went to a Catholic school, so I've had more than my fair share of both the theological and the cultural side of, of, of the church served up to me. Uh, but these days, I'm about as confirmed a non-believer as it's possible to be without getting kind of evangelical and, and weird about it. Um, so for that reason, you know, religious beliefs being something I don't get, I suppose I find the amount of attention and emotional energy given over to something like the Pope's visit, you know, a little bit baffling, but that's not really the point, but also slightly vexing in the sense that, you know, we have these big, serious issues 
Scientists tell us that global warming is happening and maybe the death of all of us. Uh, scholars and political activists of all stripes try week after month after year to make us care when it comes to issues like migration or inequality or the problems of society. And then this guy in a funny hat comes along, stands up and says you know, that we need to do something about it. And suddenly it's like, oh, well, in that case, these, these issues clearly need to be put to the center of the agenda. We should, we should be listening. So, you know, so there's that. But on the other hand, you know, I've never been one of those like awful Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, you know, t- type atheists who think, you know, not only does church doctrine or religion, whatever happened to be like wrong or factually inaccurate or something I don't agree with, but like religion is this blanket force for evil and we need to mobilize all of society's resources to, to exterminate it and stamp it out. I mean, you know, no. You know, millions and millions of people in the world do seem to believe in this stuff deeply, and the institutions of religion do appear to have a capacity to reach people and move them in a way that, for all the best efforts of social science and normal politics, it seems to be difficult to do for good or for ill. You know, so when someone comes along who has a you know access to that kind of pulpit uh, with that kind of reach and power. And, you know, we all know that he could just get up there and go off on one, basically, and bang on about how the gays and the Muslims and the feminists are all a threat to what God says is true and right. You know, but instead he chooses to use it to uh, um, tell us that our top priority ought to be trying to understand each other a little bit more and maybe lay off the whole war thing uh, and uh, notice that global warming is happening. I guess I come back to saying, well, maybe more power to him, that... You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff that just isn't for me, that's too deeply baked into Catholicism for me ever to be quite comfortable with the idea that this is an institution so many people look to for guidance on this kind of thing. But if organized religion is going to be around, and it is, and it seems like there's not going to be much of a shift in that for a long time, then the way Pope Francis is going about using that kind of power seems to me like about as much as someone in my position could reasonably ask of him, probably without him just resigning from the job and going to something something else for a, for a living. So I kind of, I'm torn about the fact that it matters to so many people that stuff like this comes from him rather than any anyone else. It's uncomfortable this is a source of authority, but if it is a source of authority, he's using it about as well as I could ask him to, I suppose. Does that seem like a reasonable point of view? Uh, (laughs) let me put a question I guess picking on what you're saying and then put this to you and to Costello Uh, I think in a way because I know Costello's been on the ground and worked with groups who are trying to deal with issues Uh Um, which ground is Costello referring to Costello the religious ground and dealing with issues holy ground sacred ground things like Gender Wherever dis- I walk is sacred ground. Gender rights and gender discrimination in terms of transitional justice for okay. that, right? In terms of that you, you've seen, you've had experience with people who are dealing with the refugee crisis. Mm-hmm. So in terms of humanitarian reactions to that. So how much are Catholic organizations and the church connecting up with other groups, not necessarily religious groups, but secular groups, to try to coordinate and to try to find a common ground to advance these efforts. That's my question. Does the church do more good than harm, Cristela? <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell us. I, I get the feeling that uh, Scott is asking me a question to which he has some answers. <laughs> and so I will say, Scott, my experience on the ground is uh, rather limited in its engagement with um, arms of the Catholic Church. And I would say my experience on the ground is that they actually they do link up. 
Like, but like, does, does religion make things worse Don't or ask me these, these questions. I'm trying to narrow down. I'm asking. I'm answering the small parts, not the big parts. <laughs> well, in the does case, it make in things better? Cases, religion like, is in. Have you in, found religion to be in the cases you know, that I've worked in? Religion has also been the thing that disappears people, or has been the reason for which disappearances and murders and so on, and mm. politics with a big P and with a small P happens. So, you know, is it religion that, that causes the harm, or is it religion that's the vehicle for other things? Mm. I, I think you actually put it that well, that religion has been used, and this is not just with the Catholic Church, we hasten that. This is with all faiths. It has been used as an excuse for oppression, uh, and for waging conflict in many cases. But there are many people who are motivated by religion to try to make this a better world. Um, yeah, like if you go to Africa, there are huge numbers of people who one has to assume wouldn't be doing the amount of work they try and do for, for, for the poor, etc., if they didn't have some kind of religious motive underlying. Exactly. And, and, and my, I think it probably touches on your mixed feelings about Pope Francis, and, and, but it coming at it from a slightly different way, and that is, is that we channel everything in terms of religion into this icon. Mm-hmm. And I'm not one for icons. So. And it puts us in this all-or-nothing position that you either wind up and say, oh, he's fantastic, you know, he can do no wrong, here's the statements. Or you take the Dawkins position. Um, yeah, but you've got to stamp it out. It's the source of all evil, shut up, you're wrong, you're stupid, you must yeah. be stopped. Which, given some of the very insensitive and uh, uh, intolerant and uh, Islamophobic statements that Richard Dawkins has made in recent weeks is not exactly... Mm. Something I want to embrace either. So, to the extent that you get beyond, in a sense, the politics of religion and get to the activities of religion in terms of where it can be a force for good, where it can, and this word has been used quite a lot by religious groups, not often fulfilled, but has been used, notion of dialogue. When you get that notion of dialogue that takes place, uh, not just that we're all going to be happy, clappy, and celebrate together, but actually deal with things like poverty, like uh, discrimination. You know, that's, that's the kind of thing I would look forward to. Uh, probably one final point, just to, to throw it back. I, I found it interesting this week, and, and as you're talking about, you know, the Catholic Church has had these major issues it hasn't necessarily resolved. It's been political, excuse me. But the same thing has happened in the, um, uh, in the Episcopal Church, uh, the Church of England being part of this movement, and that they've had issues over whether or not they would have gay clergy, for example, and the real damaging thing about that was that it took away and it sapped energy from the very good work it was doing on the ground in many respects. And I think it's beginning to overcome that, hopefully, mm. although there's a long way to go. And the same challenge is there for the Catholic Church. If it wants to be relevant in a world in which the Church does not dictate politics, in which the Church, in fact, is seen as, in some senses as a celebrity sideshow to politics, I think it's actually got to connect up with what's happening on the ground rather than making grand pronouncements. Yeah, and it's very clear that Pope Francis and his PR machine is 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 very cognizant of that. I just get the sense you question whether it's more than PR, and I think that's a valid thing to valid question to raise, mm. and one yet to be answered. I mean, one of the, I guess one of the last things, if we still have time, producer Connor, uh, uh, to note is. That the that the that the visit is illustrated is the changing na- nature of the Catholic Church or the changing constitution of the Catholic Church in the United States. So he went over there. He did D.C. He did New York. He did uh, uh, Philadelphia. So I guess the idea of the Northeast of the United States as being this bastion of white European, often Irish or Polish Catholicism, 
And the fact that now with demographic changes, with a huge influx of uh, Hispanic people, mm. Latin Americans into the United States, the, con- the people who make up the church are changing and uh, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in terms of the dynamics of uh, the Catholic Church's political discussion, its contribution to the political process, if the people who are involved have a different set of concerns or from a mm. different background. Does that play into how the church uh, discusses things when talking to an American audience? That's a great point. There's an excellent scholar here, a guy named Warren Parsons, who is, is doing research on this. And what he's really found is that the Catholic Church, in many ways, has been sidelined in American politics, not just because of historical discrimination against it, but because, to be honest with you, the church couldn't get its act together in terms of representing all of Catholics in the political discussion. And that means that there was this brief moment when the Catholic Church was instrumental in the election of George Bush in 2000. But it was because of one strategist, a man named Deal Hudson, who said, you've got to reach out and realize the church isn't just in New York, it isn't just in Philadelphia, that in fact the power of the church is now in many places such as the South and in the West with the changing ethnic population. Problem is, is that Deal Hudson uh, had to step aside from politics a few years later and the church has reverted or is at risk of reverting back to the white Northeast enclave. Mm. And that just isn't going to have a long-term impact in the States. Yeah, it's not where the future is, absolutely. Okay, now we turn to number of the week, our effort to get uh, talking points about topical issues thinly veiled uh, uh, by uh, a discussion of numbers uh, and a particular related numeral into the dialogue. So, who's going to go first this week? We think we always seem to start with Christalis. I, I think I'm going to mix it up well. by going over by going over <laughs> to Scott. <laughs> I think it's because we normally start with Scott for the first talking item, and then I, I go with you first for the next one. But Scott, mix up our normal patterns for us. Better, Give us a number and tell us something about it. I better pluck one from the air then. Uh, let's go with 785. Uh, 785 is the official death toll from a stampede that took place last week in near Mecca uh, in Saudi Arabia during the annual Hajj, the pilgrimage, by up to two million Muslims. Uh, it is a tragic event, to say the least. Uh, two groups of pilgrims were in narrow streets. They converged on the same point for a ceremony, uh, the stoning of the devil ceremony. Uh, whether it was because of a lack of effective security, whether it was because of a breakdown of barriers, uh, there was a crush, and you get just this horror that ensues. But the reason why I chose it is not only to mark this tragedy uh, and to remember the dead, the injured, and the missing, it's because of the politics that then followed over it, which could have equally significant ramifications. At one level, this has sparked or fed tensions within the Saudi monarchy. Uh, The King Salman just took the throne earlier this year upon the death of his predecessor, Abdullah. He comes from a different faction than Abdullah's uh, Abdullah's group. And this incident has therefore fed the rivalry for the top post. Uh, Some people are sniping and saying that the king is not in possession of his mental faculties, that it's actually his son, who is deputy crown prince, his very young son, who's actually running the kingdom. Uh, There was even one unnamed senior prince 
who decided, I'm not quite sure why, to go to The Guardian, uh, the British newspaper, and explain that this was a serious rift. That in itself is concerning given, you know, Saudi's economic influence, political position. At the same time, however, the fallout has been one in which Iran has now spent almost a week setting aside almost every other issue, including the nuclear deal, which we have talked about as being historic, including other crises in the region, including the question of its economic recovery, to just simply bash the Saudis. We're now at the point where Iranian officials are accusing the Saudis of kidnapping Iranians who were in the stampede, but who they say survived. Uh, and they're saying that there may be hundreds of Iranians who were abducted. We are now having senior military uh, officials in Iran saying that this was a Israel-Saudi plot, I'm not quite sure why, to kill all these people, to create some sort of crisis. It's, sometimes Iranian conspiracy theories aren't fully worked out. Yeah, I guess they more evidence that big, that big tragedies tend to produce uh, conspiracy theories on a scale to match. Exactly. But it's not just you know French people in the military... It's not just certain MPs. It is at a point where the Supreme Leader has demanded an apology from the Saudis, where President uh, Rouhani, who is a centrist in Iranian politics, set aside the opening of his UN speech, just set it aside and replaced it with paragraphs that said the Saudis must be held responsible for this, there must be an inquiry. Well, the knock-on effect is, is that we have a series of crises in the Middle East in which both countries are involved. I mean, they're involved in supporting different sites in the Syrian conflict, they both have concerns in the Iraqi conflict, which is going on. Uh, they are both concerned over the uh, in, uh, events, the civil war in Yemen, with the Saudis leading uh, a military intervention at that point. The, there was a faction inside Iran that was advocating engagement with the Saudis to discuss these issues, to try to find a way forward on these issues. That's gone. Rouhani and the people who had advocated engagement cannot risk seem to be soft on the Saudis. So we now are going to see an Iran-Saudi confrontation over a number of issues um, in the region where a tragedy becomes both pretext and catalyst for that type of conflict. Wow. That is a a horror in both present and in prospect. Yeesh. Okay, Cristala. Uh, are you going to make me that depressed? No, I am going to... Are we going to do that constituency in Australia again? Are we gonna, <laughs> no, are we I, gonna did follow, consi- I did consider it. I couldn't find anything up. on it. Um, I couldn't find any links to the Catholic Church or to, or to, or to Putin. Um, <laughs> stay tuned. I'm sure I'll find links next time. Uh, my number is 20 million. And we that got some is, high numbers this week. Yeah, yeah. This my my twenty million is the number of pilgrims this year for the year of mercy that will be going to Rome specifically. So for those who don't know, the uh, year of mercy begins on December eight. I, I don't insult our audience, Christina. <laughs> I think we're all well aware of what the as year good, of mercy as, is. As a good Catholic, I would expect that that you should know this specifically. Um, now the faithful will be granted special indulgences. I'm not sure if they granted or sold special indulgences uh, which as we should it's a touchy know, subject yeah, um, is the highest form of forgiveness but this is interesting because uh, so the Pope our friend the Pope has gotten a little bit tense about whether whether Rome is prepared for this and he says you know 20 million guys you know, get 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 your get your 
stuff together because uh, things might go bad. Um, and he has given rather an unforgiving assessment of the Roman mayor. Now, critics have said that he is critical of the Roman mayor, uh, Ignazio Marino, because... Bravo. I know, thank you very much. The Roman mayor is very vocally supportive of gay marriage and euthanasia. So I contrast this. I wonder whether this is a part of the Italian press machinery, which doesn't like the mayor anyway and needs something to talk about. This is euthanasia for the, for the sick, I would hope, <laughs> rather than... Because otherwise I kind of see the Pope's point. <laughs> um, on this program, you're a constant defender of this Pope, aren't you? <laughs> he, he, he's my guy, what can I say? <laughs> anyway, back to my point. Pope gets mad at, at the Roman mayor. People say it's because he is, he's being attacked because he, the Pope is attacking the mayor because he is a staunch defender of euthanasia for the sick and marriage equality. Um, don't know. Stay tuned. In the meantime, 20 million people are going to start rolling into Rome. Romans are going to be very happy about this. Mm. Well, I, uh, I for one have every confidence in the uh, uh, the Italian organisational culture to to uh, rise to any challenge and bear any burdens. I have pictures, especially in my mind, of special indulgences being sold at like tourist corners. Get your special indulgence here. Right. Five euro for a special indulgence. Well, you know, that's Am I how... Am making light of... The, 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 of, the, of the great schism and the fracturing of the Catholic Church, uh, I, some might say, although I'm, I, for one, am perfectly happy to guffaw. And, uh, I think it's not, it's not too soon to make a Reformation joke, probably. We're just, we're just about <laughs> at a safe distance from those events. You know, a gag at Martin Luther's expense can probably be, be spared without a riot breaking out. Okay, awesome. Uh, my number of the week, also really high, really high, a, lot, a lot of high numbers this week, a lot of high numbers. Uh, 11 million, which is the upper estimate for how many Volkswagen cars may have oh. been rigged to cheat emissions tests uh, carried out by the EPA in the United States. Basically, for those who haven't been following the story, and I wasn't either really, like, you, ve- you tend to hear these sorts of scandals, like something's wrong with a car, um, now they'll probably have to recall it, whatever. You, it becomes noise in the background until I finally sat down and looked at what they actually did. It's one of those ones where it dawns on you, wow, that actually is utterly outrageous. Uh, they had these standards to meet to make their diesel vehicles uh, sufficiently kind to the environment to meet standards. And they rigged the vehicles up so that there's a specific series of things that are done to the car when being tested to see what the outputs and emissions are. They rigged up the, uh, the vehicle to go into a different mode when they recognised that was happening so as to meet the standard. And then, in fact, when it was being used under any other circumstance, its emissions were just massively, massively higher. I think that's genius. Um, well, that's clearly someone thought so too, <laughs> uh, who worked within Volkswagen, because they did this with millions of cars uh, and then sold them uh, in violation, it's safe to say, of the spirit of the environmental regulations. I mean, there's obviously a, a scandal of gargantuan proportions. I mean, the, the chief executive has lost his job over it. But, I mean, just how bad it is kind of takes a while to sink in. There was a, there was a very good article in the Irish Times this week, uh, which was sent to me by my dad. Uh, hey, Dad! Um, one, of, one of our guaranteed listeners, at least, um, which, which argued that it was actually a worse scandal than Enron, um, if you take into account you know, the number of people that it, that it may have affected via the emissions, the fact that the colossal fines and 
my word, they are going to be severe that are coming in may actually take down an otherwise perfectly healthy company uh, and all of its employees with it uh, when all of this stacks up. Uh, and of course, the damage that will have been done to public faith in things like technology to try and deal with it, with, with environmental issues, etc. I mean, we can only assume that this ground of a culture where there was an awful lot of pressure that was being put on people to just about respect the letter of the law without respecting the spirit. And then, you know, the line between what you're supposed to do and what you can get away with and what you should do all got a bit blurry and fuzzy uh, somewhere along the line. But I suppose it's it's a warning that, you know, once you lose sight of just recognising the right thing and doing it as any part of the cultural milieu of the system you've built, uh, some pretty shady things can happen and they might well come back to bite you like whoever runs this company probably never told anyone to do this probably never even entered their 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 head that they might do it but now like they're on the dole queue and their whole company is in flames because i suppose i can only assume someone at someone at a certain level decided well this is the kind of thing the bosses would will thank me for um so you know be careful the kind of uh, tonal messages you send your employees be about their priorities. Careful, would be, my advice. be careful about institutional culture of pressure. <laughs> yes, exactly. And the flow-ons of that. It could bring you down. Yeah. So um, that's my number of the week. As we're, as we're at a, a university, was it not a student who uncovered this, the beginning of this scandal? I think so. I couldn't versus? unfortunately name them, but I think it was known for a long time before this actual explosion of the scandal, or at least it was in the public domain, mm-hmm. because someone found it in their research. Producer Con is nodding at me, so I'm taking that as confirmation. It's definitely true. So, uh, yeah. Uh, just another example this year of uh, uh, research being yeah, done. researchers pulling at a thread uh, um, uh, and then finding out that some much larger structure unravels as a consequence of doing it. So, hey, if you want to look into something big, important people are doing and then put the results out there, uh, more power to you. Russian President Vladimir Putin has been a source of delightful amusement for years to the internet, for whom his fondness for shirtless outward-bound activities and military equipment have transformed him into a sort of cartoonish Bond villain straight from central casting. He gets rather less funny, most seem to attest, the more closely one has to actually deal with him in real life. This week, President Obama met him at the United Nations, but preceded this by appearing to call him out during a speech that accused someone unnamed of wanting to return to a world where, quote, might makes right, of disregarding the importance of strong international institutions, and of an illiberalism at home that betrayed his regime's fearful and weak attitude towards his own people. Putin's most recent black mark, as far as Obama is concerned, has been revelations of dramatic escalation in Russia's direct commitment to preserving the Assad regime in Syria against its various enemies in the civil war there. But they've already butted heads over, among other things, Russia's interventions, political and military, direct and indirect in the affairs of its neighbours, Ukraine and Georgia. Mr Putin, for his part, accuses the United States of an irresponsible disregard for order in seeking to undermine or overthrow regimes like Assad's when the alternative is a violent Islamism that is far worse. He used his own speech to the UN to call for a new international coalition, like that against Hitler, no less, to oppose terrorism, ISIS and things like that. So, what do we make of this latest episode of Mutual Trolling, and what does it tell us about the role Vladimir Putin has come to play, or is trying to, anyway, in the world, and the clash of worldviews that seems to be the primary feature of his relationship with the United States? Scott, you have, you have some thoughts on this, I think. Vladimir Putin on your wall, shirtless, uh, on a poster, 
uh, or is he on your dartboard being pinged by uh, interna- liberal internationalist darts? For the sake of my sanity, I try to keep any image of Vladimir Putin with or without shirt out of my head, uh, no matter how hard he tries to put that image in there. Yeah, he's, but, tried, he's really his branding people have tried hard to make that central. <laughs> but that, that gets to the initial point, which is, is that this is the combination of a skilled, ruthless politician with a man who is cognizant of the nature of publicity and the changing ways that you grab publicity. And the takeaway line for this is that he uses strength to cover up weakness. Now, Putin's not the first person to do this. I mean, leaders throughout history, when they have faced problems of social unrest, economic discord in their countries, uh, not necessarily having the most military forces against their rivals, rather than to concede that position, they, to use a poker term, they double down on the bet, and they try to say, okay, we're going to challenge you here. What are you going to do about it? We saw this with Putin. We've seen it in many cases, but to give you one which I think is probably seminal, important to it, in early 2014, when Russia suffered a huge, and Putin suffered a huge setback, when a popular rising forced their guy out of Kiev, uh, Mr. Yanukovych, within weeks the Russians had to rally, find a solution to this, and they did it not by conceding that Ukraine would now be, quote, pro-European Union, linked to the U.S., although not part of NATO, we hasten to add. They said, okay, we can't get our own person into Kiev. We're going to step up the pressure to separate part of the country away from Kiev. Uh, They succeeded in annexing the Crimea. They succeeded in supporting separatists to cause trouble in other parts of uh, eastern Ukraine to the point where they, they will at least get autonomy and where you have a very tenuous and some would say illusory ceasefire, which is in place. Um, Putin has done this with his Baltic neighbors when they have benefited from the economic development of Europe and economic progress. The Russians, for example, using cyber warfare against Estonia in recent years. And, of course, there was the conflict with Georgia in 2008. Now, why do I say that in, in, in preparation for this? Well, because it's not a new trick for him to come out this week and to say after the Russians for a month have built up their military inside Syria, uh, they've put in at least 34 advanced warplanes, at least two dozen advanced helicopters, they have put in strategic airlifters, they have put in uh, drones to uh, surveillance of targets, and they put in several hundred troops as advisors, and I put that in quote marks uh, deliberately for the Syrian militia. Syrian militia because they didn't make this secret. They made sure they got discovered doing this in the sense of what are you going to do to us now? Putin could only do this. He could only do this in the Ukraine. He could only do this in Syria if he was moving into a position where others had shown weakness. And that brings us to President Obama. Obama may have had a couple of tough lines in the speech, although it would have been nice if he had directly named Putin. If you're going to go ahead and say that, you know, have the guts to give the name to it. Um, He may have said that President Assad was not a very nasty character, but the fact of the matter is is that the United States put itself in the position of being pushed around by Russia. 
because it does not and has not had a coherent approach to the Syrian crisis and has not done so for years. Specifically, the United States said weeks ago, oh, these military moves are terrible. We were the Russians. We are not going to do, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Within two weeks, they had accepted the Russian military moves and they had basically accepted Russia's political game, which is high-level negotiations to keep Assad in power for the short term. They folded. They gave way. So, by the way, did the British, did the Germans, but we'll use the Americans as examples here. All of this is cast against the fact that Russia has a serious weakness, which is its economy, which is under great pressure because of internal issues regarding management, organization, that it has been under sanctions by the international community. It is a very fragile economy. If you were really playing hardball with Putin, you could take this to the wall and you could break the Russian economy or come close to it. But no one wants to take that risk. Mm. It does sound pretty risky, Scott, I'm not going to lie. It was risky. It brings back ideas of what happened in 91 at the end of the Cold War as to how far you go with the Russians. You break it, you own it, as I believe yeah. the, uh, the, the not really pottery barns rule goes. And my point is not to say that you go ahead and do it. My point is to say, however, we know pretty much that there's a line that politicians won't cross when they approach Putin's Russia, right? There's a line regarding the pressure on the economy. There's a line regarding how much they try to stir up the population against Putin. Putin doesn't know boundaries. He doesn't know lines in this case. He will go as far as he thinks he can go in Syria, in Ukraine, in other conflict areas, until someone basically puts up not just a token stop sign, which is what Obama did this week, but puts up a very real stop sign uh, that it's time for the Russians to, or for Putin and uh, the Russian military uh, to pull back. Hmm. You're saying that Russia only recognizes might. I certainly think that Putin really only recognizes might. I think uh, conciliatory gestures do not work with Putin. I think you have to, and again, the Ukraine is a similar case. The fact is, is that when Russia, at least, they didn't stop, but at least they checked how far they were going in Ukraine, it came because of a combination of two things. One is, it came because of the economic pressure that was put on Russia. Uh, and secondly, it's because there were very clear lines drawn, which is we will not accept the disintegration of the Ukraine, the eastern part breaking away from Kiev, and we certainly will not accept Russia trying to move into the Baltic states. At that point, Russia then went into the process that led to the Minsk uh, ceasefire, but not before. Yeah, I think when he first met him, Vladimir Putin was described by Barack Obama as uh, unsentimental, which is both euphemistic and also, I think, probably one of the best words to describe him. That does seem to be like at his core. Uh, he, he is very reluctant to, to, to layer his characterization of power requirements in with, with even uh, the thinnest veneer of liberal talk, I guess. Does, 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 yeah, does, what, do, what do you think? Stop. You know, I have no thoughts other than general depression on this topic. Well, welcome, well, welcome, to, the, <laughs> welcome to the podcast. I think we've, we've, we've probably got a big space open for that. We've been generally cheerful. We've been in a cheerful space, apart from, apart from Scott's, uh, Scott's story of the day. What, what do we call it? Number of the day? Yeah, num- number of the week. Yeah, okay, that, that started the down the trajectory. And, I'm just, so and now what, I'm just jumping think? into the vortex, general depression. Adam, what do you think? See what I did there? Yeah, I see you kind of turned it around, threw it, threw it right back at me. Well, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I, will, I will expand a little before I, before I pass the ball back to you, I guess. 
I mean, I, I guess I'm going to do do a, do a reverse pope, as they as they used to say back in Catholic school. Um, <laughs> I would like to know what a reverse pope <laughs> no, is you, in Catholic school. No, no, you school. wouldn't. Um, what I will say is that you know. So what I mean by that, I guess, is that I will start with a, a little bit of a gesture towards sympathy, and then you know pull, pull back because you know I do not want to end this. With it, with it to be mistaken for me saying, yeah, Vladimir Putin, he's the way forward. I mean, I have a bit of sympathy. Like, again, you know, the hypocrisies of the United States are very real, and the grandstanding rhetoric that wraps up U.S. policy in any given instance is often a pretty acrid blend of the disingenuous and the dissolute and, and, and the uh, delusional. Um, you know, when I first got into U.S. foreign policy all those years ago, back when I was an 18-year-old kid, mainlining Noam Chomsky off the off the bookstore shelf and uh, feeling very clever and righteous that you know. I could, uh, you know, pull back some imagined curtain and go, see, behold, the truth that there is inconsistency and uh, moral compromise in, in American foreign policy and all of its rhetoric is, in fact, uh, uh, not entirely lived up to when it needs to be met uh, uh, with, with American interests. You know, the United States brought down the government of Libya without a good plan for what to do afterwards. That's caused a lot of trouble. Uh, its position in Syria seems to be a desperately conflicted do-nothing created by the tension between um, its dislike of ISIS and its dislike of of Assad, and you know the United States to flag up a, a long running sore has these close ties with Saudi Arabia, which make a mockery of any time it takes to the stage and says in a you know loud declaratory and hectoring tone that democracy is the only acceptable system and the world will only be be as it should be when the world is is full of them. But you know on the other hand, I guess uh, you know two things. One, the obvious one, which is that, you know, for all of its hypocrisies, I do think, as a matter of fact, that the United States does have a bunch of liberal values in there somewhere um, that are pretty widely embedded in its political culture and that do tend to be sincerely felt by its leaders. And while it still does some awful things sometimes uh, uh, that sit ill with those values, I feel like that's often less a product of willful malevolence or cynicism most of the time and more about the fact that foreign policy drags everyone into a world of dark compromises and, and self-deceptions. So what Vladimir Putin does is essentially cut out the middleman. He goes straight to what he thinks is the source. You know, he thinks democracy is a sham and so he treats it with contempt. He thinks all of international politics is about power politics. He treats everything as a matter of you know, bribery or corruption. And that's bracingly straightforward for about five minutes. Uh, but in terms of actually having to live with it, if I have to choose between a world order that's run by leaders who are at least have a tortured acquaintance with liberal standards and are failing to meet them, versus someone who's never felt so much as a pang of guilt or reflection when it comes to anything, be, yeah, be, being his own most ruthless self, I guess I know what way I'd, what, what, what way I'd rather go. But secondly. Uh, you know, and perhaps less immediately, obviously, there's something weirdly ideological in its own way. I can't help feeling about Putin's desperate desire to force the US to accept his discourse in a way. You can kind of feel yes. most of the time when he's talking that it really pisses him off to have to listen to the United States talk and think the way that it does and the way he trolls them uh, until they accept that his way is right, not just in terms of action, but in terms of how they characterize what they do. It's like until they admit that he's right about the way the world works, you feel like he won't be quite happy. But which is, you know, interesting. A, they're never going to do that, so that's like really setting yourself a hide into nothing. But B, it's a sort of backhanded acknowledgement on some level that how we talk and think about things does matter, that it's such a matter of, of irritation for him. Um, and the one thing I will, I, I, will, I will finally say, I guess, is that uh, anyone who is listening to this absolutely has to look up 
um, the photographs and the video footage of the two of them spending time together over the course of this UN conference. It is, it is a sight to behold. We're accustomed to people looking like they don't entirely you know, love the company on a personal level of their... Of, of their grimaces. But this is like... Case. I mean, like, Putin has kind of got a smug look on his face that says, you have to tolerate me. I'm here. I'm in your face. And Obama... I just love it. Like he just projects and radiates such an I am putting up with you because I really need to. But this is like this is a necessity. Is the old Simpsons joke uh, where um, Krusty the Clown says, everybody, it's more than a pleasure to be here. It's a contractual obligation. (laughs) It really feels like that. There's a moment where they come out on video to do their handshake for the cameras. And the body language is um, is just awesome as an indicator of, you know, um, how people can go through the motions of being seen to be diplomatic to one another while something seething is visible on another level. These, these are not guys who I think will be spending time at the bear hunting lodge together in their respective retirements. But that said, Cristela? No, 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 no. Okay. No, that said, I think there's two things that, that that highlights. The fact that at one, that you get to the point where Obama quite viscerally doesn't like Putin. He knows what's happening, yet there seems to be a pit powerless to counter the latest moves. The first point is that this isn't just with Obama, that go back to 2001, when a guy named George W. Bush meets Putin. Now, you and I, we, we all seem to be in agreement here that Putin's a bastard. We know he's a bastard. That's how you have to deal with him, whether or not what he does is right or wrong. That's what, is that your translation of what unsentimental means? That would be unsentimental for me, yeah. I'm, you know, I... Let's just take things up to you know that next level. But supposedly, Bush meets this guy, and his response is, you know, not oh he's unsentimental. We've got to deal with him. This guy could be a threat to us. I looked into his soul. (laughs) I can deal with him because I looked into his soul. Yeah, we both used Colgate. Was no, that was someone else, was it? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that was Tony Blair, who also has an equally dark soul. But when Bush (laughs) said this, he wasn't actually talking about the dark soul of Putin. It was like some enlightened soul that we could connect with. Well, Mm. here's the sequel to that story. My first point: the sequel to that immediate story is that uh, uh, after 9/11, Putin used that. And made the concessions, for example, the Americans wanted to scrap the anti-ballistic missile treaty, fine. He used that as the space to go in and complete the Russian demolition of Chechnya. I mean, leveled the place, tore it apart. And this is a story which has been one of the most significant in geopolitics, which isn't told. Uh, and that uh, hundreds of thousands of people displaced, killed, injured by this conflict, Russia ruling with an iron fist. Guess who a lot of the foreign fighters in Syria are? They're Chechens. Uh, just throw that out there, right? Now, that's Putin's calculation. At a time when Russia is quite weak on a number of fronts, it gets the space, he exploits it. 2009, the Obama administration comes in. How do they introduce themselves to Russia? Hillary Clinton, in one of the worst photo opportunities in history, meets her Russian counterpart, the foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, whips out a big red button, but doesn't say we're going to blow the world up, says this is the reset button to reset our relationship. Yeah. You yeah. don't really want to get into the habit of pressing the big red button. Like, <laughs> acculturating your Russian interlocutors into big red button pressing is maybe not the way to go. No. You don't want to press it to blow up the world, but you also don't want to press it for some silly type of idea that it's going to be happy, clappy relations. Let's now. just leave buttons yeah, out of it. Leave some help, generally, let's say. Because the second point is, is that whether or not he has deliberately exploited this or his team have exploited this, 
Putin's been very clever in making the U.S. the center of the issue rather than actually uh, the excuse for what he's talking about. And by that I mean the fundamental problem in Libya, despite the fact that the U.S. and NATO partners messed it up subsequently, the fundamental problem was the rule of Muammar Gaddafi and an uprising against him. The fundamental problem is the people of Syria rose up against President Assad. Uh, the fundamental problem in Saudi Arabia is, although the Americans are complicit in this, it is a fairly repressive monarchy uh, with some very loathsome human rights practices. Now, what Putin says, however, is he says, well, let's just frame this as the U.S. versus us. So let's not talk really about what the real issues are in these places. Hmm. And when he does that, he gets every anti-imperialist or wannabe leftist who wants to sound clever winding up siding with the Russians. Simon Jenkins, who used to be a decent columnist in The Guardian, came out and applauded Putin this week and said, we need to support him in working with President Assad. Thank goodness he has said yeah, this. Yeah, well, he's trying to frame it, uh, Putin, this is, as a conflict essentially between the forces of order and yeah. the forces of disruption. And his hope, it seems to be, after, uh, you know, pouring ink all over his, all over his global, copy, uh, global politics copybook yeah. with the Ukraine uh, stuff earlier, is now that he's got new facts on the ground to try and bring himself back to the, Dave, to the big boys table and get traction and uh, a degree of alignment, if not allegiance, from the Western powers based around this idea that, look, we've all got a common problem here. Uh, we may not all share a view on uh, the ideal... Um, solution to it, but we know enough that this is the less bad way forward to try and preserve the forces of order, the forces of government, the forces of stability against this potential tide that could consume us all of extremists, Islamists, and, uh, uh, and you know, après ça, le déluge. But that's the sleight of hand. The sleight of hand is, is that the be-all and end-all is the Islamic State, just as the sleight of hand more than a decade ago was it was al-Qaeda. Guess what, folks? It's not. But yeah. that's also a sleight of hand that the U.S. is using. Exactly, and that's why they fall prey to this. Because the fact is, is that the fundamental problem, if we take Syria as a case, is the Assad regime and the way that it's carried out its rule against its own people. That's the fundamental problem. The Islamic State would not have existed in Syria had it not been for that. The fundamental problem in Ukraine was the relationship amongst Ukrainians against a government supported by Moscow, which was seen as corrupt and not responding to their needs. That's the starting point. But if you frame it as an East versus West dialogue, you get it back onto your terms. And, yeah. uh, well, it's, it, it was weirdly reminiscent Putin's speech of like the war on terror and its declaration yeah. in a way. Like on the one hand, it's an identification of a of, of a real threat, I suppose, and an effort to get a coalition going around it. On the other hand, it's so sweeping in what it seems to assert that it's obviously designed in a way to uh, to almost put. Uh, wooden platform, like a hollow wooden platform over a whole bunch of other issues that you can then stand on to say, okay, whatever else is going on, nothing to see here, uh, let's all turn our attention on this one new existential and all-consuming thing. And in you that know. regard, I think is an excellent rhetorician, how do you pronounce that? Rhetorician. Uh, I don't know, actually. I'd say re- rhetorician. <laughs> rhetorician. Speaker. <laughs> yeah, just actually yeah. speaker. Demagogue. Let's he, call him a demagogue. He speaks well. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, that, that's fair. That works. Our propagandist. And yeah. remember that it is it isn't just Putin who does this, that the Russians have this elaborate propaganda network uh, consisting of internet trolls, consisting of disinformation, mm-hmm. uh, the insidious RT, uh, the state propaganda, which is accepted as being quote, a mainstream news organization. Um, so this isn't something that 
starts and ends with Putin. Well, guys, Connor's feet are twitching under the table, and yeah. you, you have, you know, all you I wanted to say is that you, you both, I haven't gotten any less depressed than I was when we started this conversation. Thank you very much. <laughs> I think we've set the world to rights. Thank you very much. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Poll Worldview, and please do. We'll hopefully have other channels for contact coming soon, so watch this space, auditorily speaking. My co hosts have been Kristala Yakinthu. Where can they find you, Kristala? You. you can find me on Twitter at at Yakinthu Y-A-K-I-N-T-H-O-U one day I will change my name to Smith (laughs) (laughs) and where can they find you Scott? I'm always causing mischief at Scott Lucas underscore EA I'm Adam Quinn. You can find me. I'm Adam Quinn 161 on Facebook, which is more used to you than Twitter because I spend a lot more time on it. Our producer is Connor McKenna, uh, and we have been coming to you from the Pulsus Department at the University of Birmingham in England. Back soon. Hope you will be too. Thanks. Thanks.